Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and I'm sick, but don't worry. You don't have to listen to this nasally voice very long because I wasn't sick when I interviewed today's excellent guest, writer-director Brian Helgeland, about his new film, Finest Kind. Brian Helgeland is one of the most versatile, prolific, and successful of all film screenwriters, best known for the Oscar-winning script for L.A. Confidential, which was, of course, directed by Curtis Hansen, and the Oscar-nominated script for Mystic River, which was directed by Clint Eastwood. Helgeland's other credits include writing and directing, Payback with Mel Gibson, Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, and 42, starring Chadwick Boseman as Jackie Robinson. That's a very abbreviated list of his credits. But the movie that he's always wanted to make is Finest Kind, inspired by his own experiences working on a fishing boat off his hometown of New Bedford, Massachusetts. The new film, out now on Paramount+, Plus, has a stacked cast that includes Ben Foster, Toby Wallace, Jenna Ortega, and Tommy Lee Jones. We talk about how he went from fishing to film, breaking with horror scripts, and also about whales. Brian Helgeland moved years ago from Massachusetts to California, and I moved from California to Massachusetts, so we start out talking a little bit about that. Here's Brian Helgeland, writer and director of Finest Kind. Um, I'm recording this from your home state of Massachusetts, where we are in the middle of a windstorm. So if I suddenly shut off or something, uh, you know why. We've got a lot of trees down, things like that. Um, but as a, I guess, I guess I'm now a masshole uh, since I've lived here for a few <laughs> years. I felt like <laughs> this movie set about an hour from where I live felt really authentic and true and very cool and turned me on to things I had no ideas, uh, no notions of in the commercial fishing industry. So I just, I thought it was great. Congratulations. No, thank you very much. Um, when I, when I moved to California, whenever there was an earthquake, even the huge one we had, my dad would call me like, what are you doing there? There's a, there's an earthquake. And uh, the, the huge earthquake Northridge, I think it was 70 people died, um, which is, yeah. you know, nothing to make light of. But I had said to my dad, you know how many people died shoveling snow in Massachusetts last year? And it was something like 500 people had had a heart attack shoveling snow. And I'm like, so a snow a snowstorm is actually more dangerous than an earthquake. Yeah, this is a, <laughs> this is rough sledding out here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, well, sometimes when you interview somebody about their movie, you also want to know about their entire career. But in this case, the origin of this movie and the origin of your career are kind of the same. Yeah, I, um, I, when I got out of college, it's about commercial, you know, the movie has a big commercial fishing element in it and a, a young guy who's trying to get into that world. And when I graduated from college, I went to UMass Dartmouth, uh, which wasn't even UMass Dartmouth at the time, but, um, I went fishing for a year and a half because it's what my dad had done and my grandfather and uncles and cousins. And one of the very first scripts I wrote, it wasn't the first one. It was probably the third or fourth. You always get that advice of write what you know. So I wrote about fishing, but then could never, should have been the first movie I ever probably got made, but it ended up being the, the most recent. I won't say the last. <clears throat> so is it a situation where having the career that you've had, I mean, an Oscar, an incredible number of hits, kind of got you the clout that you needed to make the thing that you wanted to make all along? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it was clout, really. Um, it's one of those movie things, you just the time was finally right for it. And, and if I told you why the time was right, I'd be just making it up because I don't know why. But um, 
it, it's like if if it just stays alive long enough, I guess it it uh, it might get made. The good thing about it, in hindsight, was I never sold it. I never optioned it. There wasn't a dollar uh, against it or any company saying we own this script and you have to deal with us. So I always owned it free and clear, be- simply because no one ever wanted it. And uh, that was very helpful when it finally uh, had a chance to go somewhere. And did you always see yourself directing it? No, no, because I didn't. When I wrote it, I didn't think of myself that way. I was just trying to get a writing career going. So I was hoping to get a good filmmaker on board to um, to take it. Um, but after I had finally directed, as soon as I had finally directed one film, I thought I, I, I'm the only person that can ever do this. Yeah. Well, I read an interview where you said that you kept the script that you wrote when you were 28 and then you directed it when you were 60 and you tried to keep the 28 year old perspective as much as you could and not to mess with it. But then you've got 32 years of accumulated screenwriting knowledge since then, including writing some of what are recognized as like the best scripts ever written. (laughs) Did you put anything in there that you went back and went, now that I know this about screenwriting, I'm going to change this or that. I, I changed, uh, I shouldn't say changed, but I polished, I guess is a better word, the older characters, the Ben Foster, the Ben Foster character and the Tommy Lee Jones character, because I had much more insight into those guys as a 60 year old than I did as a 28 year old. But the younger characters, Charlie, um, Toby Wallace's character and Mabel, Jenna Ortega's character, I just left them the way I wrote them back then. I was, I was a yeah, I was afraid otherwise it would seem like some old some old guy trying to write young people. It didn't feel like that at all. It felt like everybody got got well served. Um, you know, I I read reviews of this beforehand, which I should never do, and I I totally I, I read a sort of negative review that I totally disagree with first. But one of the things that they said is the dialogue is too on the nose, and so I was look I was looking for that. Like, is the dialogue too on the nose? And I didn't think that at all. Yeah, um, but yeah. Critics have to say something, and it, you're, it's often being reviewed by a person who wanted to make a movie themselves and never did, and things like that. Yeah, um, I mean, it's if you get good reviews, you love the critics, so you know you got to sort of take your lumps, I guess. But I do think there's a disconnect on this film between the reviewers and and more uh, print uh, print film people who are writing articles and and podcasters and. Anyone else but reviewers seem to really like the film a lot and embrace it. And for whatever reason, it's not uh, it's not exciting reviewers. And that's just that's the way it is sometimes, you know. But sometimes, yeah, you read them and you think, well, I know I know when I'm writing good dialogue and I'm and I've written good dialogue in this film. So, yeah, you are. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to ask about, because I was listening for stuff that was on the nose, and you can find it in any movie. There's there's some stuff that needs to be on the nose to just explain things and move on. There's one part where Mabel, Jenna Ortega, kind of explains herself pretty quickly and succinctly, and I went, maybe that's what they're talking about. But then I realized why you had to do that. Can you talk about why you had to do that? Yeah, she's um, going up to see her mom, who, not to give away too much in the movie, but her mom's like a a low-rent drug dealer, like a neighborhood drug dealer. And she wants to go up there without Charlie, who she's just met, seeing any of that. And she gets called on, are you ashamed, by one of the other characters. So she's like, no, I'm not ashamed. So come on up. And that blows up in her face. 
And when they hit the street, the idea was that she's so this thing that she's done to be brave has embarrassed her. And she's afraid that this guy she just met is going to be completely turned off. And she has to make clear to him that that's not that's my mom. That's that's her world. It's not mine, even though it, it does cross into her world. So that was the idea behind that is that the, the scene that preceded it forces her to say something that she wouldn't say normally until they had gone out five times or whatever. Yeah, I felt like that was very good exposition in the sense that you need her to say it at that point in the movie and you kind of need to fall in, kind of fall in love with them as a couple quickly. Yeah. Really interest in her for all the stuff that's going to happen later. And I thought <clears> it was <throat> because then they're going to go to see and we're not going to see her for a while. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's an, ensemble, it's an ensemble movie. So you have wh whoever you happen to be with at the time, you have, you've got to make, hey with that scene you know and even before that when they first meet and this is like one of the hardest things to get across like young love people two people who are about 22 or 23 years old who have this instant connection before they have any dialogue together do you write that do you just hope it, do you pass for that like how do you do you do it yeah <clears throat> well no you write the moment in the script that he's it's a kind of that cliche of i i see her across a crowded room and she's doing something that's um, she's slipping some drugs to somebody because she's she's a not necessarily a dealer, but she's making a delivery for her mother. Yeah. And he's immediately intrigued by that, um, you know, as a young person might be as a young guy looking at a, a young woman who he thinks is attractive. It, you know, it's a wow. Who, oh, who's this? You know, and he's trying to get into a different world. Yeah. And she finds out he's gone, going to law school and she realizes he's in a different world. And she wants to get, they're both looking to get into each other's world in a way. Yeah. And that's the that's the attraction, which they reveal, which they realize by what they see in that scene rather than he, well, he realizes what he it's what he sees and it's what she hears said about him. He doesn't say it. His dad says he's been accepted to law school. And then the brother asks him about it. So it's putting together their, the evidence of, in the room and, and sort of digging each other. Yeah, there's even ways that you frame that. And maybe it's like the shape of their faces and where you put their eyes within the yeah. frame. It like feels such a connection between them immediately, which was, I was really impressed by because it happens so often in a movie where you're just like, well, why are these two people together? Yeah. <clears throat> and, the you know, the way to, that we do it is the crew is chanting their, their drinking chant, kind of not dead yet because they survived the night. And yeah. he's right in the middle of it. But when he spots her, he stops. And they, they all keep chanting without him. So right. that immediately kind of cinematically isolates him in a way. Because now he's like, what's this? And no one else is noticing. And then she realizes she's been caught handing over the drugs. So she's like, who's this guy who just clocked me? Yeah. And it, so it's the two kind of close-ups of that. When you, and you light them. You, 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 you know, we spend extra time on those. And... And uh, just to try to make yeah. that drop the sound out a little bit and play with it. And it's just kind of filmmaking, really. Awesome. I wanted to ask about some of the dialogue, starting with the phrase finest kind. Um, I guess that's a real phrase. You probably grew up hearing it. Yeah. Finest kind is a fishing term. It's kind of uh, it's the gangster. 
it's the fishing version of the gangster thing. Forget about it. Awesome. So it, can, it can mean different things, you know, depending on the attitude you say it with and the tone you say it with. So it can mean get lost, get over here. Great. Like mind your own business or suit yourself. It can, it just depends on how you say it. Yeah. Um, I don't, no one says it better than uh, Tommy Lee Jones in the film. I remember when the first time he did that, he, the first time he said it, um, I turned to the script supervisor and I said, that's how you say finest kind. I, I went, when you've sort of given up on somebody. So it's not like a New England thing necessarily because he's from Texas. Where is it? No, it's, it's commercial fishing. They say it up in Maine. They say it in Alaska. Um, oh. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fishing expression. I read that you didn't need a technical supervisor or anything like that. You didn't need to go down to the <clears throat> research because you didn't. Yeah, no, I had fished. Um, I was, when I got back on, a, I hadn't been on a boat in 38 years. I don't even know how long, since 1987. And I, the first thing I wanted to do when we caught some scallops was to see if I still remembered how to shuck. And all the gear, the way you handle the gear and, and, dump things and pick things up and send them back down to the bottom of the ocean all was still the same. And, wow. uh, it was so ingrained in my head, that stuff. I had, I had not forgotten it. Um, uh, I, so that was great. Also, we, we, we sent the cast out on boats, um, as their boot camp. They went out, they all went out to sea for about a week and worked wow. as fish and worked as fishermen on a boat that a friend of mine from those days was now the captain of. Which ends up being, which ends up being the finest kind in the movie. That's my friend's boat. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Some of the some of the shots at sea are incredible, and you have whales in this movie. Did you did you actually were those real whales or those CGI we, whales? No, we shot those whales. The um, <laughs> what we what we were out there, and the camera boat, which was about a quarter of a mile from us. Well, I should I should reverse that. We knew we were in kind of a whale area, and we had some downtime when we were moving from one location to the to the next. And I had um, Aaron Stanford and, and Toby Wallace go up on the rail and pretend they were seeing whales, just in case we saw a whale. But we hadn't seen any. <clears throat> um, so I had them point to the left, point to the right, point. You know, just so I get the eye line right if they came came along. And about two days later, the camera boat, which was a quarter of a mile from us, said, hey, we got whales on the other side of us. And uh, I said, I wasn't on the boat and I was on the other boat. And I said, well, send up the drone and see if you can yeah. get them. And they sent up the drone and they flew it out there and filmed that stuff. And then we just matched it to. But we were just hoping to get if, if we hadn't seen any whales, it wouldn't have been in the film. Oh, gorgeous. Wow. Yeah, they look they look amazing. I'm a sucker for those uh, New England aquarium documentaries. Yeah. <laughs> I watch one big one of this. Um, yeah. And I love that you said finest kind is like the fishing version of forget about it because obviously you're very stooped in crime and and organized crime dramas, um, and knew that that was a good way into this movie. Um, I'm just going to ask kind of a stupid question. <laughs> obviously, you knew the fishing side of it. How did you learn the crime side of it? Well, the crime side of it is a little bit um, attitudinal in a way. I've been, I didn't ever smuggle heroin when I was fishing. And um, I never, you know, took excessive amounts of drugs or anything like that when I was fishing. Um, but I guess I kind of 
some of that, I think sometimes in movies, the crime part of it is you're, you're writing movie criminals in a way. Um, but you still have, you know, attitude of, of, I met a lot of tough people when I was fishing. Um, and a lot of jerks kind of that w- were very aggressive guys. And I used that, I gave that to those criminals, even though those guys weren't criminals, they were just kind of bastards. But um, I had been around, didn't have trouble with them really, but it had been around a lot of guys like that, Um, or at least that would front that way and then, you know, ease off when they got to know you and stuff like that. So I think it was, it was sort of transferring some of that attitude. Um, and they're, the basic criminal enterprise is pretty straightforward. It's just pick up these drugs and bring them in and, and we'll pay you. Uh, so I didn't have to invent anything that wasn't. Every fisherman knew, especially in those days, the, that sometimes drugs were dropped at sea and brought in. And um, in my hometown, uh, there was like a, a, a weekend where all these bales of marijuana kept washing ashore. And uh, the police were everywhere trying to scramble to find him and warning people not to go looking for him. And uh, some boat had got spooked and dumped all their marijuana bales in the, in the water before they got boarded and they all washed in. And uh, kids in high school were, had T-shirts made that said, save the bales. <laughs> so it, it, it was around. That, that kind of stuff was around. And, uh, but some of it's just who's the best movie kind of bad guy we can come up with. That's, that's awesome. I love how you write crime, how it's just sort of matter of fact. Um, there's always like an angle. There's always an element of uh, menace to your criminals. Um, yeah. There's always a tension there, but it's never like cartoony or over the top. Yeah. It's, you always think of them as they're doing their job too. Everyone's doing their job. We're fishing. We're doing our job. Even the criminals are doing their job. They're not running around with an evil plan to take over southeastern Massachusetts. You know, it's like they're making money and making a living. And if they if they mess up, they might end up in jail for three years and get back out. And so they're in the middle of of their enterprise as well. And uh, but it has different rules. It doesn't have the rules of going doing a nine to five job. And and to present them that way, you know, to present them as, um, as the bad guy says to Tommy Lee, I got, I got boys too. (laughs) I wouldn't want to see him in a mess like this. Um, so it's not, it's just to make them real in a sense. And the more arch they get and the more villainous they get, it's, they're just not kind of real as, as, as people. Yeah. Yeah, I loved your villain. I love how late he comes out in the movie too, because he kind of like injects like a whole new energy to the movie. That you're like, yeah, oh, this guy could carry a movie on his own. Yeah, yeah. I always, you know, I always love the movie Something Wild, the old Jonathan Demi movie, which is a kind of romantic comedy almost and bittersweet. And then about way past an hour into the movie, they go to her high school reunion, and Ray Liotta shows up at the high school reunion, and that whole movie just like does a u-turn like you can't believe and by the end jeff daniels is stabbing him to death in the bathroom you know it's like <clears throat> i i love that stuff and i think and i love genre but i think if if you start the if the very first thing is wow we have to make a deal with these drug guys to save our boat that you've very much limited 
the family drama element of it. And what it wanted to feel like is they're in a spiral that is headed that way. It's headed towards that bad guy, but it doesn't have to get to him until it needs to get to him in a way. And then in that, in the, when you do it like that, crime then becomes a crucible in a way that the characters get dropped into and it accelerates the drama. It gets you, it gets you home with the drama much quicker than a straight drama would. Yeah. And I also feel like in real life, when people like sort of slide into people who are not professional criminals slide into crime, that is kind of how it happens. It's like, it's a sudden thing. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's sloppy and sudden and, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone on the finest kind is reading an Elmore Leonard novel. I felt like there must be like an inside joke there or something or something autobiographical. Is, is it yeah. The, well, I always, I was an English major um, when I was an undergrad and I, I was a voracious reader. So I would always bring a bunch of books, books on the boat. Uh, just like, I mean, always novels and uh, just kind of burn through them. And when I was, before I'd go to sleep, when I'd turn in, I'd always read 30 or 40 pages of a book, um, which got to be kind of a funny, like running joke with the other guys in the crew. Um, I'm wasting sleep time reading and stuff. So I just thought I'd, I'd hand that off to the schemo, the schemo character in that scene. What time do you go to sleep on a boat? I mean, because like you lose light early. Yeah, you well, you work in the, they separate the crew in half and they call them gangs. So there's two gangs, the captain's gang and the first mate's gang. And you work uh, midnight to six in the morning. Then you sleep from six to noon. Then you work from noon to six at night. And then you and you sleep from six at night to midnight. And the other mm. gang is doing the opposite. So mm. it's very strange. You're, you're sleeping twice a day and, and working twice a day. Wow. And six yeah. hour shit. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But you get into a weird rhythm. Like uh, it, it, it actually sounds, how, how could you do that? How could you sleep twice a day? But once you start doing it, it's like, this is, this is really, this is how you should live. You should sleep twice a day and live twice a day. That's cool. Wow. So um, I've ne that's never ever occurred to me in my entire life. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, your origin story, the way the way I've heard it, is that when you were on the boat at one point, you read a book that made you realize that you could be a screenwriter. Is that right? And what was that book? Yeah, what, what it was was speaking of bring, bringing books on the boat. I went to a books a bookstore at the mall near my house to find just to find a book to read on the boat. And I was walking through the bookstore. It was a Walden's books. And I was going by the reference uh, section. And I happened to look down and on a bottom shelf, there was a book that just said a guide to film school. Mm. And I stopped short and it was like the heavens opened up. Yeah. And I, I had so little sense of how movies were made or that you could learn any of that stuff. And I'd always loved movies since I was a little kid. And I picked up that book and I flipped through it for 20 minutes and then bought it. And, uh, but I, I flipped through it and it was like a revelation. Like you can go to, you can learn how to make movies and go to California to do it, you know? And, um, 
I got home and before I left on my next fishing trip, I sent off uh, a bunch of applications to different film schools. And a month or so later, I got, I got turned down by everyone and I got accepted by, by one, which was Loyola Marymount. Which is a great school. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I fished another three months or so and then went to film school. So you were about what, 23, 24? 24, I think. Yeah. So, okay, so we're in the mid-80s. I know by 1987, you write 976 Evil, which is that your, that's not your first script, but it's your first produced script? Yeah, yeah. And, and probably, uh, yeah, my first produced script. How many had you written at that point, do you think? Um, probably six or so. All, all, in, all in film school, I wrote them. Um, no, I, that was that was after film school, but uh, 976 Evil I wrote in film school. And then that gets you, I assume, the Nightmare on Elm Street job? For yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That and uh, I had written this spec, Highway to Hell, that New Line also, they almost bought that and they didn't. Someone else did and that got made. So uh, between, between those two things that got me uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And then I think I have these dates right. By 1990, you and your writing partner on it, on it, Manny Cotto. Am I saying that right? Cotto? Cotto. Uh, Cotto. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, get a million dollars for a script. One of those. That's a Joe Esterhouse numbers before him. Um, incredible. Right. Right. Get paid, like you're very much established as one of the most in-demand screenwriters in Hollywood at that point. Yeah. The, the thing was, is I was, um, I was, um, Manny and I both were writing horror movies and no one would even talk to us about anything else. Mm. And, um, the, um, they, um, we knew we had to get out of that by, and the way we got out of it was by writing an action movie. So we could, instead of being pigeonholed as horror movie writers, we got pigeonholed as action movie writers, but it was, it was a step. It was a big step up, but we wrote it intentionally because we couldn't, get a meeting on anything other than horror movies so and nothing against horror movies i love them but but uh we did that to sort of save ourselves and then very soon after you do one of the most respected dramas ever <laughs> la confidential and get an oscar for it was that just to prove that you couldn't do action movies or what how yeah no i couldn't i love the book and i i uh I had a deal at Warner's because um, I had sold a couple of spec scripts to Warner Brothers. So they made an overall writing deal, like a, an old fashioned 1930s, 1940s writing deal where I was exclusive to Warner Brothers. And it was one of the last ones like that. Um, it was me and John Lee Hancock. Um, and he kind of worked on the east side of the lot. And I worked on he worked with Eastwood and those guys. And I worked with Dick Donner and Joel Silver on the other side of the lot. And um but all action movies, all, all action movies. And when they bought LA Confidential, David Wolper, the producer, I couldn't get a meeting on it because they said, no, this is a, this is a drama and, you know, crime drama, but a drama and we don't, you can't do this. <laughs> and so I kept lobbying and lobbying to get a meeting. And um, the, um, I finally got a meeting and it got canceled right that the morning I was supposed to have it and uh, because they had hired Curtis Hansen to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I started lobbying to meet Curtis because I just wouldn't give up. I was so intent on it. And we were at the same agency and Curtis met with me and he was in post-production 
just started post on the river wild the the movie with meryl streep and um i convinced him to let me do it with him and so i i started it because he couldn't start it so i was like i'll start i'll get the first draft and you'll have a leg up because you won't be you won't be losing all this time which is how we started out and then it just kind of went from there uh, endless drafts and Warner's even put it in turnaround at a point when we finally had a draft that we really wanted to make and uh, Arnon Milshan the producer um, independently financed it but his distribution deal was at Warner Brothers so it kept coming back to Warner Brothers even they kept trying to get a, get rid of it but it kept coming back and then of course when it got made they they uh, they embraced it one of my favorite things you do, and you do it so well with the end of that movie, is the setups that are uh, setups for like a powerful moment that you don't, it just completely creeps up on you. Like the ending of that movie is so powerful and you don't see it coming the way that it hits you. And you kind of do it in finest kind too. Like there's things that you set up, like with that long, there's a long chase at a certain location, not chase, but a fast paced scene at a certain location. Then it comes back to that location in a very meaningful way later. I, I feel like that's almost one of your trademarks. How did you get so good at that? Yeah, I don't, it's one of the, I always thought it was one of the joys of watching a movie was when, when you know, you kind of call it set, set, setups and payoffs. Yeah. And it's one of the joys of, as a viewer, as, as myself as a viewer of seeing stuff out there that then, oh, that now it's back. It's woven in and it feels like it's entertaining you know, more than anything else. Um, and so I always try to do that. It's always like nothing is wasted, you know. There's even a, there's a joke scene in Finest Kind, sort of a joke scene where a guy pulls a gun out of his survival suit on the boat early, very early on in the movie because he's trying to show that no one's going to take this survival suit away from me if the boat sinks. And it's, it's played for laughs, but that gun comes back at the end of the movie and almost is you almost is used to kill someone with. Yeah. So it's like, if you see a gun, I forget who, who said it in, in drama. Yeah. 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 If, you, if you see a gun, you got to use it um, yeah. later on. And that's that in that setup and payoff kind of world. And it's just, a, it's, it's part of the mechanics of writing more than anything, you know, it's part of the, uh, what movies I think can do so well, you know. Do you see a through line to your work? Because you've done, you know, basically every genre. Um, you've done a great sports movie with 42, which I saw in a theater at the Magic Johnson Theater in Harlem, which was one of the like coolest movie experiences I've ever had. Oh, cool. Um, it was like perfect place to see it. Uh, the Jackie Robinson story. Um, Knight's Tale is very funny. I mean, Mystic River is very grim. Like you've just they're they're very it's it's hard to believe they're all written by one person so how do you how right are they right <laughs> well because i i mean i feel uh, not in a bad way but i feel a little bit anonymous as a as a creative person and i think it's because i'm all over the place genre wise you know if you make the same movie over and over again but you do it really well you're suddenly an auteur you know um Nothing against auteurs, but um, I think a the thing that ties a lot of my stuff together is that it's a lot. It's often about identity. Um, it's often about identity and trying to 
different versions of that, trying to figure out who you are, trying to stay true to who you are, um, trying to find out who you are. I think Knight's Tale is, is very much an identity movie um, as far as his journey, and he's not going to be content with where the world has placed him. Finest Kind has that a lot. In 42, he's the only person who knows who he is. Everyone's adrift and who am I and what do I stand for? And, 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 and Robinson's the only person who's sure of himself and knows who he is. And um, I think even in conspiracy theory, Mel Gibson doesn't, he's been brainwashed and no longer knows who he is and is trying to remember, you know? So I think it's identity more than anything. And, and to some extent striving to, to separate thing a little bit, but striving to get somewhere, you know, which uh, Knight's Tale certainly has. Um, Mr. Griver has that they can't get somewhere else because they're prisoners of where they came from in a way. But there's that desire to break free of that and they can't. I'm sorry, this is like so on the nose, but that seems like something that you understand. Like you came from a small Massachusetts fishing town that's kind of a one industry town. Yeah. Maybe not now, but maybe when you were growing up was thought of as like a one industry town. And then you're like, I want to do one of the most, to, to some, some would say one of the most glamorous jobs there is. I want to go make movies in Hollywood. Right. And, and <clears throat> you know, it's, it's one of the things is there's no role model, right. If you grow up in that environment um, and to want to do something for lack of a better word, artistic, it wasn't even, it's not like it was frowned upon. It was like, un, it was inconceivable in a way. No one thought that way. So it wasn't like I said, hey, I want to tell stories. And people are like, what do you, you know, get back in your box. You know, it wasn't even that. It was like, I didn't have the ability to think that way about myself. Um, and yeah, so I think I always envy people that, that went to, you know, went to drama, majored in drama in college. It's like, how did you even think of yourself that way? I can't, yeah. can't even, I can't imagine it. Um, yeah, so it's like, it's, it's a little bit like that. I mean, it's very much what the Mabel character in Finest Kind is, is she knows there's a world out there. She can feel it and sense it, but she doesn't know how to get her hands on it, you know? And when she meets Charlie, she's like, you know about this world. So I'm going to latch on to you here because you maybe you have the breadcrumbs we can follow to get there, you know. And then just being an outsider trying to break in, did that become. I mean, you're coming from you're one of the people and I'm not saying like nobody in Hollywood ever gets any dirt under their fingers or whatever. I'm not saying that. But like there are people who are very white collar and maybe come in it like through, came to it through their family or something like that who've never like shut scallops, you know, <laughs> having two six hour shifts a day. Did you kind of come at it? Like I have a work ethic that you people, that most of you can't get near. And that's yeah, I, 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 I had that. Um, and not in a, not in so much a negative way, but it just gave me a, a confidence. Um, and like many times when I, I would, in meetings especially early on i would sort of scan the room and decide who could who could survive on a fishing boat who couldn't that kind of thing like you you could you could make it you couldn't make it um but 
it gave me a confidence about myself. Like I didn't have to tell, I wasn't always like, Hey, I, you know, I did this, I did that. I never talked about it at all, but it gave me a confidence because I didn't think I could do that job at all. And I was terrified for, for the first month or two that I was doing it. And, and, uh, very proud of myself that I pulled it off and I really enjoyed it too. And met a lot of great people and fun people. So it definitely, it definitely, it definitely helped, you know, it was like when we, when I'd be on set and people would be like, Oh boy, what a grind. I'm like, yeah, you have no idea. <laughs> but like, um, what, people would say what on a set? What a grind this is. I'm so tired and we're working so hard and, Right. Although I love film sets and I love film film crews because they remind me of fishing crews and they remind right. me of being on a fishing boat. The the kind of dedication to one thing. This is all we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So was this? <laughs> I'm very uh, self conscious talking to a very good writer because I realize that everything I'm going to say sounds cliche. But I want to. What I'm trying not to say is, was this kind of the white whale? Was this kind of the one that you? Um, yeah. Wanted to get done. Yeah, I mean, I, um, and I worked with a lot of great directors as a writer, and and had very good experiences with a lot of them, and and learned a lot from Tony Scott and um, Clint. I did two movies with both of them, Clint Eastwood and Ridley Scott. I worked for, and but Dick Donner especially, I worked several times for, and they all had a movie they wanted to make that they could never get made and had resigned themselves to the fact that they were never going to make it. And it, in Dick's case, it, I had written it for him. And uh, it was a Western about a deaf gunfighter. And so I always thought Finest Kind was mine. I, it was a movie I was never going to get made that I always wanted to make. So when it finally now has gotten made, it's kind of like that's been, that's been taken away from me. I don't have the movie I'm not supposed to make anymore. Um, so yeah, it was a white whale in that way. It's never, I, I was convinced it would never, ever get made. I'd try and pay lip service to one last try, but I never thought it was going to get made. Well, what I was setting up was a question about what do you do after you've made the thing you've always wanted to do, but now I really want to know what's the movie that Clint Eastwood can't get made? <laughs> that one, I don't know. That one, he's never caught to that. He's never caught to that. But, uh, um, yeah, there was, a. I think in Tony's case, it was a Hell's Angels movie that he wanted to make this Hell's Angels movie that he just could never get off the ground. Wow. So what do you do after the movie that you've always wanted to make? I mean, you just jump back <clears> in. And... Yeah, I don't I don't know. I'm a little bit at a loss right now to sort of figure out what it is. I think I want to just do something very different from anything else I've ever I've ever done. Um, but I have to find it. I don't, I couldn't tell you what it is uh, uh, at this point. And I'm not trying to do the thing of, well, okay, but what are you doing next? When your movie came out like literally three days ago, are you taking a minute to just enjoy this moment? Yeah, not really. I'm always about like the next, the next, the next. I mean, even when you're fishing, you could have a great catch you know you could come in and make a ton of money and it's great but then three days later you got to go out again and uh and it's like you know it's like okay I'm, I'm unemployed again it's like the 50th time in my life i've been unemployed and um um 
Yeah, so I, I have to sort of figure out what it is. Um, I have a thing that I don't know what's going to happen with it. I have a project that um, Sony that's a remake of the old film, The Professionals. Uh, uh, not the Luke Besson film, the um, Lee Marvin and Burt Lancaster uh, Western that we're doing as, if we do it, we're doing as a, a modern day version of that story, which is a great kind of rollicking adventure with a lot of kind of um stakes personal stakes for the guys involved and stuff like that um uh, but that's uh, that's a maybe thing like like all movies are do you find yourself thinking in fishing terms all through your career or is it just especially pronounced now because this movie is about fishing um, no, I, I always have. Um, and again, it's cause I, I do think it, there's a lot of similarities as far as the career goes and, and doing, trying your best and being at the mercy of things that are outside your control. Uh, the, you know, the weather and other people and directors and, you know, it's like all, I do find them very similar in a way. And like I said, you always have to, whatever you do, you got to go on to the next one. You know, keep waiting for the movie fairy godmother to tap you on the shoulder and go, you've done it. You've, you've, uh, you can stop doing this now because you've done it. But that never, uh, that never happens. And every director I really like that I've worked with, they, you know, they never want to stop. They never want to, let's, let's, go sit, sit by a beach somewhere. They might like to do that in between, but um, it's, a, it's an addictive thing in, in a way. It's such a, it's such a kind of fun job. The last thing I want to ask is it feels like you've had such a, and you earned every second of it, and you were there for every second of it, so to you it doesn't look this way, but it looks like, you know, local kid makes good, um, gets to have like a great career that everybody wants to have, do you think that somebody starting out now can have the same trajectory? Because I see stuff on like Twitter and Reddit where people are so negative and are just like, this is movies are over. Screenwriting is over. Do you feel like this <laughs> still happen for someone listening to this now? I, I do. I do. I think that the, the biggest problem is the, is, is not the filmmakers. It's the, or the writers or the people that are trying to do this, it's, it's the people that kind of control movies or, you know, it used to be studios. And um, even when I started out, Warner brothers just made movies and TV shows, but they just made, that's what they did. That's what they did. And now it's like a peripheral thing, you know, it's like, and the people that you meet who are running things don't, really have any experience in movies they don't they have i don't even know what their experience is you know in 1998 the warner brother film executives that's all they did was make you could complain about them and they give you dumb notes sometimes but they understood what they were doing so i think it's a business that's in flux because of the people that control it from a financial side and and whatever that all is but I think that'll pass, you know, I think that's sort of a thing that'll pass and it'll, it, it'll get back on it on track. Not that things aren't still being made and all that, but there's so much, so many kind of eyes on everything that everyone does. But if, 
you know, if you love movies, I, what I always say is if you want to do this, you got to give your life to it. You literally have to, if you want to make movies or whatever version of that uh, limited series or whatever it is, the only way that you're ever going to have a chance even is that you got to give your life to it. And that doesn't mean it's going to reward you, but it might. And it's such an all encompassing and demanding thing um, that if that sounds easy, it's easy. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but it's not quite, I'm not quite answering the question, but you know, it's like, I, I love it. I love movies and the dedication of that has given me a life that I couldn't imagine ever having. And I, totally appreciate and 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 kind of stunned by still and uh it's it's uh every everyone has a different journey but it's like i i do think yes yeah, short answer yes i do think it's still possible maybe not at the volume you know maybe i think if someone has seven or eight credits now it's a really good career I don't know when you get in the twenties, it's like, <laughs> you got to get really lucky and, but, but it's, it's possible.